Tonight we're continuing the story of Jacob's children. We've seen this several times. There have been a lot of really tragic stories of the things that have happened with Jacob's children. And that continues through tonight. But it's not just that. It is going to shift now in focus from Jacob to Joseph. And this is the fourth patriarch in the book of Genesis that we're going to look at and the last one. We've said before, Genesis is divided up into two major sections. The first 11 chapters are what we call primeval history. That's the creation, flood, Tower of Babel, etc. Then in chapter 12 to chapter 50, we have patriarchal history. We looked at Abraham, we've looked at Isaac, we've looked at Jacob, and tonight we begin looking at Joseph. And I'm sure you are familiar with this story, but this is a popular story for a reason. There's so much to learn from the life of Joseph. And this is going to be, through him, how God is going to eventually arrest that downward spiral of the sons of Jacob. And tonight we're going to see the beginning of that process. When they let their envy get the best of them. And Proverbs 14 verse 30 tells us, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. That's a very vivid picture, isn't it? A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy for what someone else is or what they have, being jealous, will ruin your life. And it will ruin the lives of those around you. That's what sin does. Sin does not make things better. Sin makes things worse. And tonight we're going to see how these men reacted at the beginning, what you might say, understandably. Their reaction was something that we all can relate to. But by the time the story is over, they have escalated a bad situation. They have not solved it. They have not made it better. They've not even made it better for themselves. They've made it much worse. And we're going to talk about how envy and jealousy specifically will do that, but also in general, any kind of sin will do that. And we're going to make the point along the way as well, Powerful people love to exploit envy and exploit jealousy and make it a virtue in order to control people and in order to get done what they want to get done. We ought to resist that. When you feel justified in your sin, you end up in a really bad place and there are people that want to tell you that it is justified to sin. Instead, though, of envy and jealousy, we're to live out love and forgiveness and grace, just like Jesus Christ. It all comes back to him. He's our example in all things. And our negative examples are very easy to find, especially in this chapter. So let's read the first four verses to begin, but we'll do the whole chapter tonight. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Well, the last chapter ended with the death of Isaac and the genealogy of Esau. What happened to the nation of Edom? Jacob, as far as the story goes, is the patriarch 
in the land, although as we'll see, Isaac was probably alive for many of the events that we're going to read about here. But you probably caught it. In verse 2, we have our 11th and final Toledoth marker, which indicates the last major transition of the book of Genesis. That Hebrew word Toledoth means generations, and it has been used 11 times to divide up the book of Genesis to indicate transition, to indicate a change in focus. It's very often followed by a genealogy. And I'll go ahead and list all 11 of them for you. Number one was the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then it was the generations of Adam. Then Noah. Then Noah's sons and the table of nations. Then the generations of Shem, the son that we're going to follow through to the end of the book. The generations of Terah. The generations of Ishmael. The generations of Isaac. In chapter 36, we had two instances of the word generations referring to Esau. So really 9 and 10, but you could say 9. And then number 11 is Jacob, the generations of Jacob. So this introduces the last major section of the book of Genesis. And it tells us at this point, Joseph is 17 years old. So Isaac was probably, and I would almost say certainly, still alive at this point. Remember, Isaac will live to be 180 years old, and it is possible that he lived a good 60 years after Jacob returned to the promised land, depending on how you time their deaths. But we saw the death of Isaac. This story probably overlaps with earlier in the story, which is nothing that we need to be concerned about. We're shifting in focus. We're not necessarily giving a strict chronology. Joseph is 17 years old. He was the youngest son until Benjamin was born, and it's not quite clear when that happened, but he, he probably was much younger than Joseph was. And it says that he grew up with the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah. We remember these two women. They were the handmaidens of Rachel and Leah. Zilpah was Leah's handmaiden, and Bilhah was Rachel's. And when they were having their, their children contest, do you remember that? They were trying to see who could have the most kids. Initially, Rachel gave Bilhah to Jacob to have children. That way she could have children to compare against Leah's. This was a legal practice, although I, I think it's very doubtful to say that it was a moral one. And then Zilpah did the same. And this was not just, you've had a child, now thank you, moving right along. You can see it says in verse 2, they were called his wives. This was a, a, a status not quite to the level of Leah and Rachel, but it certainly was a legal one and a more important one. This is why when Reuben committed that, that incest with one of them, it was a grievous thing. It was not just this woman who had happened to have a child. So we do not do culture this way. That's the way they did it. So these children, the children of Zilpah and Bilhah, of the tribes would have been Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. So when it says he grew up with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, that is Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. And this is an interesting thing to note. It will repeatedly in this chapter talk about his brothers and what they did to him. But right here in the beginning, we identify as the primary antagonists of the things they did to Joseph were these four, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. They are all guilty of it. But as it goes along, you, you should think to yourselves that it is these four who are driving the story forward. Joseph was Rachel's firstborn son, and we know that Jacob had only wanted to marry Rachel, but he was deceived by Laban and was 
then married to Leah, and then he had to work seven more years for Rachel. Rachel could not have children for the longest time until finally Joseph was born, the child of his old age. And this is why Jacob loved him the most. And he gives him, of course, the famous technicolor dream coat, <laughs> the coat of many colors, which is interesting as I looked at this. The word for coat is ketonet. It, it, it means tunic. So it was not so much an outer robe as something that was worn all the time close to the skin. And for many colors, it's ha-pasim. So pasim, we've learned this, that im is a plural ending. So pas, it can refer to the palm of the hand and the sole of the foot. It means flat. So most cases, when you refer to a robe that is ha-pasim or of the soles and the hands, that the robe went all the way to the end of the hands and to the, to the ankles of the feet. It was a long, big robe. But it is traditionally translated many colors. So the idea is that this is something that is either longer and therefore in better condition than everybody else's. You know, everybody got hand-me-downs and Joseph gets a brand new good one. It could be that it was many colored. Dye, of course, was very expensive back then. Or one option I looked at was that it was ornamented and embroidered. And that by referring to it as hapasim, it wasn't so much that it was long as much as it was the fullness of a coat. It was the best version of it. It all amounts to the same thing, but I thought that was interesting to give us a little insight into what that term actually meant. The point is, he's getting nicer things than everybody else's, and this seems to have been sort of the last straw, where they maybe had been able to say, no, I, I feel this way, but dad doesn't love him more than me. And then Christmas rolled around and everybody else got rocks and sticks and Joseph got the Technicolor dream coat. And this is going to produce a terrible breach between Joseph and especially these four brothers. Jacob is showing the same favoritism to Joseph that his mother and father had shown. Remember, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And then also that his grandfather and grandmother had shown by casting out Ishmael and keeping Isaac. Slightly different situation, but you can see that this family has a problem with picking favorites. Jacob had his favorite wife. He had his favorite kid. And these children, remember, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, these are the sons of Jacob, but they are the sons of his handmaidens. They're not the sons of his wives. So they probably already felt like second-class sons anyway. So that's already a point of insecurity for them. Now their little brother, his delay in coming was the reason they were born in the first place. So you can see why they maybe would have felt inadequate here. Not only is he favorite, not only is he a true-born son, but it says that he gave a bad report, in verse 2, of them to their father. That when they were out in the flock, being guys, I guess, probably doing things they shouldn't be doing, Joseph comes home and tattles on them. And I'm going to not draw this out as much as I have in the past, but it can be helpful to read this passage where Joseph is not just the sweet little innocent Pinocchio, but that he's, he's like a little brat, the spoiled brat tattling on everybody and ruining it for everybody else. And I'll come draw that out more a little bit later. So this relationship, it says that they cannot speak peacefully to each other. You ever have a relationship with somebody you could not speak peacefully to them? You could not get along. It didn't matter what you were talking about. You were going to end up fighting. That's what they had. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Paul told the church, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I think Jacob gives us 
one of the best examples in the Bible of provoking your children. Paul says, your kids are going to have a hard enough time learning to be righteous without you making it harder on them. And Jacob's blatant favoritism gave the devil a foothold in his children's hearts. Envy is a sin, but sometimes there are understandable reasons for it. I've seen this where parents will come and complain about their children. They don't respect me. They don't listen. Look at all these bad things that they do. Then you talk to the child and the child tells you some of the other stuff that goes on at home. And you say to yourself, well, if I lived in that house, I'd probably do some of the same things you were doing. And sometimes parents think they have some sort of moral pardon for their life, or they can act however they want because they're dad, they're mom, and the kids have to listen and respect me. The Bible tells us that that is a terrible attitude to have. Don't provoke your children. Don't push them to the place where they're going to sin. Our job, before we talk about envy and, and the dangers of envy and jealousy, our job is to not give each other a cause to be envious, a cause to be jealous. You can do this in your marriage where your relationship with somebody else is a point of jealousy. And I'm not, let's not talk about affairs or anything like that. Let's talk about maybe your relationship with your mother, where mom has the say in everything that goes on in the house. Maybe your husband wants to do this or that, but no decision gets made without you calling mom and making sure that she's okay with it. And it becomes a point of envy and jealousy because he has a relationship with you that is affected by your relationship with her. Or with your friends, guys. You spend more time out with your friends than you do with her. And then when you are with her, all you ever talk about is them and how you wish you were with them. Well, she hates my friends. Well, are you giving her a reason to hate your friends? We can do this in the church. All kinds of different ways. The Corinthian church was doing this because they were holding up the people who spoke in tongues on a pedestal. And if you don't speak in tongues, are you really a Christian? And Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 12 and says, guys, we don't all speak in tongues. So don't come around thinking that because you have this gift, you're better than this person over here. There are churches that will do this with the gift of teaching and preaching. If you can preach, then you're up here with everybody else. And if you can't preach, then I've got nothing to say to you. Administration in some churches. Where we, we take the way that God has made us, we decide which ones we like, and those are the ones that get special or preferential treatment. That's not good. We can even do this on a national level. And of course, there's plenty of examples of this. India has what's called the caste system. Or on the top, you've got the Brahmins. And at the bottom, you've got what are called the Dalits. God made you to be poor and made you to be downtrodden. And if you look at me, you have to go and offer a sacrifice to the gods or you're going to be reincarnated as something terrible. That is a recipe for envy. <laughs> that is a recipe for jealousy and for pride. We're not to give each other cause for that. Now, that does not absolve anybody of responsibility for being envious or jealous. God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. He's like, I know that this is hard, but you've still got to do the right thing. So don't think that because you've got a good reason to sin, you are therefore excused in sinning. God will not see it that way. Take responsibility for yourself. But you know what? You've also got to take responsibility for the ones who love you. And because you've got a kid who's good at baseball and a kid who stinks at baseball, you don't make the one start hating not just baseball, but you too. 
Or because you got one kid that gets great grades and another one who struggles, and therefore the one who's smart gets all the attention and all the love and all the prizes and all the praise, and the other one has just said, why can't you be more like your brother? Don't do that to your kids. Don't do that to each other. Don't do that to your wife or your husband. Because envy rots the bones. Remember that? You don't want your bones to rot, and you don't want bones in your house to be rotting. But that is exactly what Jacob did. Now let's see what happened in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the first of three pairs of dreams that will mark Joseph's life. Three times is he going to encounter two different dreams. The first two are his. The next two will be the prisoners when he is overseeing the prison. And the final two will be Pharaoh's. And the meaning of these dreams are fairly obvious, especially if you know the story. He says, your sheaves of wheat bowed down to mine. And then the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Joseph had 11 brothers, 11 stars. Therefore, it only makes sense that the sun would be his father and the moon would be representative of his mother or maybe all of Jacob's wives. You get the point. Everything in the heavens are bowing down to him. So he seems to be destined for greatness is what the dream is saying. And not only that, but I'm going to be better than all of you and you're all going to come and bow down to me. Before we dive too far into what it means for this story, I want to mention something that we may get into in more detail later. Dreams are a totally biblical, legitimate way for God to speak to his people. You read your Bible, there are a lot of dreams where God speaks to his people. Jacob had a dream where he saw the angels ascending and descending. Joseph here, not only this Joseph, Joseph in the New Testament, Jesus' father, would have dreams where the Lord said, get up and leave because they're coming to, to kill your son. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Zechariah says, in the, in the night I had visions, which is what you call dreams. Paul had a dream where he saw the Macedonian man saying, come over here and help us. Jesus appeared to him in the night. And there are others as well. And throughout church history, there have been men and women who have had prophetic dreams, which is only what we should expect because Joel 2.28, which Peter quoted in the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So when Joel and then later Peter are explaining what some of the evidences of the Holy Spirit would be, prophecy, visions, and dreams. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul is listing the sorts of things that were shared in a church meeting. One of them, he says, you have a revelation. We're not talking about scriptural revelation. This is a prophetic revelation. 
where you might say, God has given me a dream and this is it. The point I'm trying to make is that these are real and that God still to this day, biblically and theologically, is perfectly within his biblical bounds to speak to his people through dreams. And people then say, oh no, now you're just opening up all kinds of strangeness and you want to change the Bible. No, I, I don't. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So just because somebody comes in with a dream, it does not mean that it's going to change what we do. It means that we are going to test it against the word of God. We're going to test it against biblical wisdom, and we're going to see if there's anything to it. We can know for sure God is never going to reveal something in a dream that is outside of sound doctrine or outside of what he's already revealed in his scriptures. Because God is not a liar. God does not say one thing in the scripture and then come along and say, actually, I changed my mind. And there are folks that will tell you. I had a dream where God told me that it was okay for me to leave my wife and go with that woman. I had a dream where God told me it was okay for me to continue to deal drugs. It was okay for me to continue to rob for my employer because God understood. No way. You might have had a dream, but that's not a godly dream. I'll tell you what. We test all things. And we want to say, well, if God speaks directly to me, isn't on the same level of scripture? Terrible comparison to make. God is not going to contradict God. Jeremiah 23, 28 says, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. For what has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Straw in common with wheat. You want the wheat. The straw is what you, you give to the pigs, right? You give it to the the other animals, but we make bread out of the wheat. He's comparing the quality of his word versus that of a dream. Now, the point of that verse is not to say, no more dreams, no more visions. The point of that verse is to order those things properly. I'm not going to come up here and tell you the 10 dreams I had this week and hear the new things God has to say. I'm going to come here and open up the word and teach the word faithfully. And we do give place in our prayer meetings and home fellowships and places like that for things like this to be shared. But we need to know what comes first, and that's the word of God. But I do want to make very clear that as Christians who believe the Bible and have a high view of Scripture, we must be open to God speaking to us through dreams. I myself can think of one definite experience and, and multiple other smaller ones where God absolutely spoke to me in a dream. And if I were to tell you what it, what it was, it wouldn't make a lick of sense to you. But though God was speaking to me, I've had lots of other dreams that meant absolutely nothing. There are some people who think that every dream you have is from God, and therefore every dream must mean something, and you should get a journal and write it down and identify what all the parts are. Well, that's, that's not what the Bible says either. Those who had a dream in the Bible from the Lord seemed to know that something was different. And I've had that experience before. My other caution, though, while I do want us to be open to dreams and to visions and to anything else that the Holy Spirit would want to do, and the Bible did say, as I read, that these things would increase in the last days, not decrease, that after the completion of Scripture, we should not expect less dreams and visions, but more, according to the Scripture. But here's my other caution, to be patient in seeking to understand them. This is another problem I see. Somebody has a vision or a dream from the Lord, and they rush to figure out what it means when they're not sure. And they think, this must apply to my immediate situation, when maybe not. The Lord has spoken to me things that I've written down and sat on for a long time, and then later on, I'm like, that's what that was. 
Or maybe the situation makes itself clear. And you think to yourself, why did I share that before? I was totally wrong about what it meant. See how it says, Jacob kept the saying in mind? If anybody ever comes to me and says, I think God might have given me a dream, that's what I'm going to tell you. Write it down, pray it through, think about it, and see what God has to say. We serve a speaking God. He's not a dumb idol. He speaks, and he speaks to us. He spoke to Joseph right here. So be open to those possibilities. There are people that want to tell you they can, they can teach you how to dream prophetically. Don't believe those people. You can't learn to do something like that. That's something that is within the sovereignty of God. But that doesn't mean that we're closed off to it. It means that we're open to it with the appropriate biblical cautions. So just wanted to get into that. Joseph has these dreams, but they only became another point of contention in the family. It wasn't, wow, little brother Joseph has heard from God. It becomes a point where they hate him and they are jealous of him even more. And this is one of the places that indicates to me Joseph maybe was not the, the golden boy. You know, Fix-It Felix Jr. never did a thing wrong. Because they get angry with him and even his own father who loves him rebukes him here. So don't think of Joseph maybe coming and saying, I don't know what this means, guys, but I had a dream and I don't know what it means. Picture Joseph strutting around the tents. Hey, Levi, I had a dream last night. You want to hear it? We were in the field and all your, all your sheaves of wheat bowed down to me. Yeah, you like that? I had another one too, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Guess how many stars, guys? Eleven stars. So I don't know what that means. I'm just saying, seems like God has big plans for me, wouldn't you say? Until finally Jacob is like, knock it off, Joseph. And of course it doesn't come out and say that, but I, I, it does make more sense of why they hated him if that was his attitude, doesn't it? And he's 17. You were 17. You've known 17-year-olds. The favorite son who's given all the special spoiled gifts, and now he's getting miraculous prophetic dreams. Whatever the case, the point that contributes to what we're talking about tonight, which is envy, envy gets stoked by everything. When you let jealousy and anger and envy get into your heart, there is nothing good that you can see in the other person. You want to see an example of this? It doesn't matter if the other political party does something that you liked before. You hate it now because they did it. Isn't that the way it goes? Oh, I'm sorry, you've never experienced that in your life before? You have no idea what I'm talking about, right? We're all for it now, but then a few years later, the guy we don't like says he's for it, so now we're against it. That's jealousy, envy, and anger. We're more concerned with being right and being on our team than we are the actual thing being accomplished. That's what envy does. Even if they do something good, you're like, well, they probably, they probably did it just to get all the attention. Yeah, well, they gave money to that homeless person. Yeah, they're probably buying them off. They probably saw them, you know, kill somebody, and so they're, they're buying off the hobo. They just did it so that people could see them. Like the Pharisees, it didn't matter what Jesus did. They hated Jesus because they were envious of Jesus. They didn't care that he was raising people from the dead. They just cared that nobody was coming to their church anymore and they were going out to hear Jesus and if you live that way it's leading to a crash which is exactly what's going on here so verse 12 now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem and Israel said to Joseph remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel so it uses both to describe him now Israel said to Joseph are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem come I will send you to them and he said to him here I am 
So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So this time Joseph is not pasturing fields with them. He was before. Perhaps it was that things had become so contentious that Jacob is not willing to have Joseph out there with them anymore. I was a manager for a company of some rather contentious people. And there were some folks that they might be the only two available that day, but I'm not about to put them in a truck together because I know what's fitting to happen. So Jacob sends him to go check on his brothers. He sends them back to Shechem, which is a bad sign because do you remember what happened last time we were at Shechem? That was when Levi and Simeon tricked the people into being circumcised and then slaughtered the city and took all the women and children slave. And they're leaving from Hebron, which is Mamre, where Abraham and Isaac had lived. And little does Jacob know that when he sends his son away, he's not going to see him for a very, very long time. Joseph has this little adventure where he's redirected to Dothan, north of Shechem. So they're drawing out the fact that Joseph is going farther and farther away from his father. And you could almost see a moral picture here. Obviously, it was real. But Shechem was the worst sin that family had ever committed. Now we're going farther, right? We're going to do something even worse than what we did there. And they say, let's kill him. We'll see what happens to his dreams. Envy is an internal sin. It lurks in your heart. It's like Gollum. It's like taking your injustices and the slights and the things that you wish you had and the things that you have said have been done to you and you brood over them and you think about them all the time and you stare at them and you obsess over them and it breeds bitterness in your heart. It breeds resentment in your heart. It even breeds hatred in your heart. And you can convince yourself that, well, I haven't done anything yet. I'm just jealous. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just jealous. That's actually a foolish deception. I'm sure that's what these brothers said. I'm so mad I could just kill him. Hey, man, take it. I'm not actually going to kill him. I'm just so angry. I'm so... Uh. And then eventually they came to the place where they were willing to do that. This is what James tells us about sin. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's what Satan does. 
He leads you slowly along this path where you're nurturing envy and covetousness and hatred in your heart. And he lures you away after it because there's something gratifying about being envious and jealous because you feel like you're in the right and you're being hard done by. So there's a sick kind of pleasure that we get out of meditating on all the wrongs that have been done to us and all the people who've hurt us and that one conversation that you just can't get over. Lured and enticed. And then that desire gives birth, he says, to sin. It's an internal sin, but it's not going to stay internal for long. Because once you've built up this whole inner attitude that maybe nobody else can see, but you've begun to hate in your heart, what Satan does is he comes and he gives one big blast with the bellows and the fire flares up. And now you're doing something you never would have thought you would do before. And that's these brothers right here. For years they've nurtured this envy and then they see him with his brightly colored coat and they go, this guy again. Here he comes. Here he comes. You know what? And I don't know how this conversation went. I don't know who was the first one to start it. As we said at the beginning, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali seem to have been the leaders in this instance. Let's see what happens to his dreams when we throw him in one of these pits. You want it? Will you do it? If you do it, I'll do it. We don't have to deal with him anymore. No one's out here. No one's going to see anything. I'm not going to tell anybody. Shoot, I don't care about him either. I want him dead too. If he's dead, then I'm next in line for the inheritance. So whatever. Better you get it than he does. And the conversation goes. Thankfully, Reuben intervenes. This is Reuben in a good light before he, we saw him in a terrible light. And he convinces them, don't kill him, just harass him. Just strip his clothes off and throw him in the cistern. It says it was a pit that was dry. So this is a well or a cistern that normally had water in it. Just throw them in there. You got to get the picture of them stripping him naked here. This is not just let's have your coat. This is shameful, humiliating what they're doing to him. This is how sin gains ground. So I would never kill him, but I'll throw him in the pit. I'm not going to really do it. I'll just throw him in a dry well. I'm doing fine. I haven't gone all the way. I've gone part of the way. Therefore, I'm still good. I could come back at any time. That's how it starts. That's how envy works. You start by brooding on what's been done to you. We talked about that. You can't stop thinking about it. You're trying to go to sleep and you can't go to sleep. So you get up and you pace around in the house. You get in the shower and you just keep on thinking what you should have said in that instance. Then you're walking around and you see the person next time and it's all you can think about is what happened. And you know you shouldn't do that. I shouldn't just be obsessing over this. It's not right. But you know, it's not like I'm going to do anything. I'm just thinking. Then you start to fantasize about what would I do though? I, you know, what, what if he were to come up and really cross the line? Then I, I could just really let him have it. I could really let him have it one time. I'd be totally justified. Man, it would feel so good just to see Joseph thrown into that stupid pit and watch him cry to me. And now I'm not bowing down to him. He's got to bow down to me now. Fantasizing. I'm not going to do it. I'm just thinking, wouldn't it be funny? And then you start to complain. Now it's coming out of your mouth. Your boss that has passed you up over and over again and is pushing you. Now you're not just fantasizing about what you might want to do. Now you're complaining. Now you're talking. It's coming out of you. It's starting to spill over. Out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. You're willing to tell anybody who will listen what he's done to you and gather allies around you who are on your team. Then you start to undermine. You're not going to do anything outright, but you're going to do those cowardly little passive-aggressive things to make it more difficult for that person. 
walking around the camp and Joseph's coming by, you might stick out your leg and trip him. Oh, hey, sorry, man, I didn't mean to do that. Nothing really, but it's these little mini petty things that we do to each other. You go past that, then you start to fight, not physically. But the next time they say something, you're willing to get in their face and you're willing to start something. You kind of hope they would say something because then I could finally let them know what I really think. And you get past that point, then you're ready to attack. Now you actually want to hurt that person. You're going to go out of your way to do something. You're going to strip the robe off of them and toss them down into the dry well. And it can even bring you to the place. And people get there. Don't Make no mistake about this. Normal, everyday people get there all the time where they're ready to kill somebody. Maybe the person who did it has no idea, but they've sat there and brooded over it for so long. Maybe some of that sounds familiar to you. Hey, how many of those boundaries have you blown through? How many of those warning signs? It says, bridge out ahead. You got to turn back. You, you maybe have laid railroad tracks in your mind where it is so easy for you to get to that dark place. And every time you go there, you get a little bit farther and you justify it a little bit more and you're a little more secure in thinking about it and you feel a little less shameful about it. You've got to turn back. You've got to say, I'm not thinking this anymore. I'm not going to think that way about her. I'm not going to think that way about him. I'm not going to do these little things that I know he hates so that he'll get angry at me and then I have an excuse to yell at him. I'm not going to do that kind of thing. Because Christianity and following Jesus is not about how close you can get to the line. It's about how holy and righteous the Spirit can lead you to be. It's not about saying, well, I would never actually do it, but I'm going to think about it. It's saying, Lord, transform my mind so I don't even think that way. I want to think like Jesus. I want to believe like Jesus and love like Jesus. If Jesus was anything, he was not envious. He was not a backbiter. He's not a gossip. And hey, Jesus had hard things to say, but he said them out loud where everybody could see them. Because he says, I'm not, I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to do brooding. I'm not going to sit here and ponder all the ways those Pharisees have come at me. And I'll just wait until that day comes. No, Jesus was hanging on the cross. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the example you've been given. Don't nurture your envy. Because it's going to spill over one day. And then the next thing you know, you've ripped Joseph's coat off and you've thrown him into the well. And, you know, we see the pictures and the images of Joseph being in a pit. This is not like, help, I can't get out. I mean, these things were deep. He probably hurt himself. Maybe he bashed his head when he came down. He's probably naked because they've stripped their coat off of him. Who knows what they're doing? Maybe they're throwing things down at him, yelling at him, mocking at him. They're not feeding him, I'm sure. They're not giving him water. This is, this is a horrible thing that they've done. Who knows what was down there? And it's going to get worse. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Isn't that a a thing? I'm going to do something like that and they're just going to sit down and have lunch. They sat down to eat and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, the fourthborn, said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now Reuben is not here, the following verse is going to tell us. don't know what he was thinking wandering off, but he did. 
Maybe he didn't want to be around him anymore. Maybe he's like, this is sick. I'm not sticking around for this. But they're going to take advantage of his absence. A caravan comes by. It says Ishmaelite. And then at one point it says Midianite. The Ishmaelites, of course, were the descendants of Ishmael, who was Abraham's son by Hagar. So he was to Abraham what Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali were to Jacob. And then Midian was a son of Keturah, who you remember was Abraham's second wife. So the most likely scenario is either you've got two groups of people or that they had intermarried and assimilated with each other so much that to refer to an Ishmaelite was to refer to a Midianite. One person put out there that maybe an Ishmaelite was a catch-all term for any son of Abraham who was not a son of Isaac. That's possible too. It's really not a big deal. You probably didn't worry about it, but I brought it up anyway. So They sell their brother into slavery. 20 shekels was the standard price. And look at Judah. What profit is it? We can make money off of this deal. If we're going to do something like this, we might as well get paid. And then he says, after all, he's our brother. We shouldn't kill our brother. You hypocrite. You hypocrite. It's amazing the things that we will use to justify sin, isn't it? It'll break your heart. You go back in time and you read the, the history of our own country and the things people use to justify slavery using these same kind of moral arguments. It's disgusting. But we do it every day. It doesn't always have to be something big like this, even for little things. We justify the way that we treat each other through some weird higher principle that we get into. When we reject the ideal of God, the sins of other people become attractive, and you start making friends that you would never have made before. Again, there's a, there's a symbolic picture here. These are the true sons of Abraham, and now here come the sons of the flesh, as Paul will call them later, and they're doing business with them. They're trading their own, their own brother for a little bit of money. This is what happens. The Ishmaelites were the picture of sibling rivalry. They were the picture of being rejected by your father. And they're going to engage in the same kind of sin. Feeling justified, no doubt, because Jacob drove us to do this. He's not treating us as he ought to treat us, which is true. When you're mastered by envy, you start making dangerous friends who want to exploit your sin. They want to exploit your bad attitude to make money off of it. We see this in politics all the time, where somebody goes on TV and wants to stir up resentment in one group against another in order to get something from them. And they don't care. They don't really care about what's going on. They need these people. They need these votes. And they're trying to accumulate power by stirring up envy and resentment in that group over there. One group goes to the, the Hispanic community and stirs them up against the American community. And then another group comes to the Americans and stirs them up against the people crossing the border. And now we're hating each other. And the folks that are up at the top, they don't care. They care about money. They care about votes. They care about power. And they're willing to exploit the envy and the jealousy and the hatred and the bitterness of groups against each other. Which is one reason among many why you cannot let your sin master you. Because if somebody sees that in you and they can get you angry, they own you in that moment. If somebody can get you mad, they can control you. If somebody can get you envious and get you full of hate, they control you. And the Lord knows that, which is why he's warned us against it. These brothers should have seen the Ishmaelites passing by and maybe just let them go. But now, since they're doing the same kind of thing that Ishmael was doing, they're acting just like the Ishmaelites. That's not what Christ taught us to do. 
Love does not envy, 1 Corinthians 13.4 says. It doesn't matter how justified the envy is. Jesus Christ came and forgave you of every sin. He did not hold against you all the wicked things you've done, every life you've ruined, every day that you've made worse for somebody else, every relationship that you broke into pieces. God didn't hold that against you. So how can you let envy dominate you? How can we let bitterness come into our hearts when the Lord of hosts, who is perfectly righteous and has been the most aggrieved of anybody ever, chose instead to forgive? Maybe you feel justified in your hatred of your father and your mother. They didn't raise me right. Dad was never around. Mom was always twisting my arm to get me to do what she wanted to do. I hate them. You might feel justified in your hatred of your ex-wife. She took everything from me. It's not right. Maybe you feel justified in your hatred of the rich or your hatred of another race. And maybe if you were to lay out the reason, some of us would sit there and say, you know what, I understand why you feel that way. But Christ has come and taught us all to forgive, to let go, to love one another. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who mistreat you, pray for those who spitefully use you. And when they insult you for the name of Christ, you're blessed. That's Christianity. That's the love of God. 1 Peter 2 verse 1 says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Because do you see how their envy took them from being a place where we kind of felt bad for them? to now they're doing something so much worse than what was originally done to them, that's where envy leads you. Your dad wasn't around. Your dad was rude. Your dad maybe hit you. But you grew up and you've moved on. But now that your father is old and needs your help, you're going to abandon him. And you're going to do things to make his life worse. And people will go in and take their father's money. And they'll put their parents in these places where nobody's ever going to help them or take good care of them. And they spend decades of their life wasting away. How much worse is that than what was done to you as a child? Where you go from being the aggrieved one to being an aggressor. And you escalate it. This is what envy does when you let it sit in your heart. It escalates the situation. Envy and other sins make things worse. They make a bad situation where you might have some justification for how you're acting and you make it worse to now you've done something so much worse the other person feels justified in coming after you and then they exceed that boundary. So it goes and it keeps going and it keeps going and wars are fought and nations rage at each other and families have history against one another. But Jesus Christ came in and Jesus gave us the ultimate example of how to handle these situations because as i said jesus christ was the one person who could have stood in condemnation of the world and instead he chose to die on a cross to willingly take the punishment so that he could offer grace and forgiveness freely jesus christ chose to end the cycle and he taught us to do the same thing And do you remember the parable that he told about the man that was forgiven this incredibly large debt? And he begged on his hands and knees for his master to forgive him, and his master forgave him that debt. And then he goes out and he sees another servant who owes him just a little bit of money. And he grabs him by the throat and he pins him to the wall and he throws him into debtor's prison and sells his wife and children into slavery. And he comes back and the master says, I forgave you all this. You couldn't forgive him that little thing. It's the same thing for you and me, Christian. doesn't matter what's been done to you. 
doesn't matter if it's been done to your family or to your people or to your nation. You must forgive as you have been forgiven. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive as you've been forgiven, then God's not forgiven you either. Well, once saved, always saved. What does the Bible say? He says, if you do not forgive the trespasses of your brothers and sisters, I'm not forgiving you. That's going to be one of those Lord, Lord situations. But God, I went to church. He goes, you didn't learn the first principle of what it means to be my disciple. You claimed my forgiveness and sang about it and praised me and smiled and went to church and said, this is so wonderful. And then you went out and held sins against people. So good for you, but not good for them, right? Y'all, forgiveness will change the world. It'll change your world. If you're in one of those situations where horrible things have been done on all sides and you come in and you say, I'm going to choose to abdicate whatever right I might have to exact revenge against you because I love you and because I love Jesus Christ. That shatters the resentment and bitterness in a relationship. If you will let go of it, the world will not understand it and they probably won't even like it at first. They'll say you're weak for forgiving. They'll say you're a traitor for forgiving. They'll say you don't deserve to be one of us for forgiving. But Jesus said they're going to hate you because they hated me. But there will be those cases where you forgive and you show love and you show grace and you don't hold it against people and it melts their frozen hearts and they say, how could you forgive me after everything I've done to you? Because you know what people will do? You offer forgiveness to somebody, very often, they will intentionally do worse things to you to test you. I don't know why we do this to each other. But the husband comes home from the men's retreat and God's done an amazing work in his heart. He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to forgive my wife for the way that she's been talking to me and forgive her for the way she's not submitted to me and maybe even the way she's cheated on me in the past and tell her no strings attached, I forgive you and I love you. Those next few weeks are often miserable ones for him because now she's going to ramp it up. She's going to scream in his face. She's going to throw things. She's going to threaten to leave. She's going to go out and she's going to flirt with other people. She's going to push it, push it, push it. I don't know why we do that to each other. But if you hold on, what happens at the end is that person's heart is finally broken. All the walls that are built up just come collapsing down like Jericho. And they come in and they say, what is going on? How can you love me this much? And you say, it's the love of Jesus been shed abroad on my heart. After everything that God did for me, I can't hold anything against you. It's either that or selling your brother to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. We'll come to the end here, verse 29. When Reuben was returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Well, Reuben 
showing a bit of half courage here. He was going to take Joseph back, which, good. But his mistake was indulging his brothers at all. If he truly wanted to lead his brothers and do the right thing as the oldest, which he should have, he should have said, y'all can knock that kind of talk off right now. You're going to welcome him and love him as a brother because it's not his fault that dad has indulged him and spoiled him. Now that we're all away, we can be together and we can learn to love one another. Instead, he said, ah, throw him in the pit. And he gave sin that, that little bit of red meat and it wanted more. Playing games with envy and hatred are dangerous. You're not supposed to be moderate as a Christian. That's what the Greeks said, and their culture collapsed. We're to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. Now the brothers have to lie and deceive their father, so they send him the bloodied coat. It says they sent and brought to him, so maybe they sent it and brought is, is just a figurative way of saying it was brought to their father through sending it. Maybe a few of them went on ahead, doesn't matter, but it sure seems to me like these guys were not only murderous and liars, but they were cowards too. They're going to send it ahead to their father because they don't want to face him in that moment. And here's Jacob, Israel, the man who had wrestled with God and man and won. The man who had seen angels ascending and descending at Bethel. Refusing to be comforted. Tearing his clothes. Jacob was a wealthy, powerful man. He was, the, he was like one of those sheiks that you see on TV. In one of those movies from that part of the world with the tents and the herds and everything else. And he tears his clothes and it says he put sackcloth on his loins. So Jacob is more or less naked in the ash heap where they would burn the fires pouring ashes on his head, weeping. And it says all of his sons and daughters came out to comfort him. Now, does this mean that he had more than one daughter? It's certainly possible. Or these daughters-in-law, either one. They're all coming out to comfort him, and he refuses. No, don't even talk to me. I don't want to feel better. You ever been that brokenhearted? I don't want to feel better. This is the son I waited for my whole life, and now he's gone. I'm going to go down to Sheol. At this, in this culture, it was appropriate to have this kind of mourning for a time. And then after a certain period, you would put off the clothes of mourning and you'd wash your face and shave. And there was a whole ceremony that went into it. But Jacob is saying here, this mourning is going to last until I die, until I finally see him again. This is these sons' revenge on their father. Whether or not they intended it to be a revenge on him, that's exactly what it is. This is the lurking danger of when you show favoritism to somebody or you don't allow envy to be checked in your heart. So, well, I'm, never, I'm not going to kill anybody. No, that's, that's not that kind of revenge. Husbands and wives will take revenge on each other. They'll find ways to do things that they know they can't stand. They'll just leave that thing out in the middle of the floor that they know that they hate. Because they know it's going to make them angry. They have a wonderful day. Everything's have gone great. They had a promotion. They had a great day at home. And they come home and they're going to make that snide comment at just the right moment. That's going to put a giant pin in that balloon and it's going to pop and everything's going to fizzle. This can even take the form of, of affairs. Where it's not so much about romance and getting out. Oh, we're just so in love. It's just, I, I've had it with you. And this is the way I'm going to take revenge on you. Kids will take revenge on their parents. This happens all the time. Kids are angry with their mom, angry with their dad. So they go out, and I've heard this story a thousand times. Mom, Dad, I'm gay now. So there. 
Say, no, that's, that people feel that way because they're born that most of the time. And I'm telling you, this is my experience. Most of the time when I've encountered somebody who is gay or lesbian or transgender or whatever it is, you talk to them long enough, there's something that is going on with the parents there. And it's sometimes even a conscious rebellion against their parents. My dad was so holy. Everybody thought he was so great. And then I'd come home and I got to see what he was like. And I saw how he cussed my mom out and threw things and got drunk and did everything else. And he'd go to church and look great. Well, you know what, dad? I'm going to go out and I'm going to get pregnant at age 15. And everybody's going to know what kind of dad you are. This happens. Society will take revenge on governments. We've seen this in the bloody revolutions around the world, right? Where the downtrodden people say, you know what, enough's enough. And they engage in something that is so much worse than the initial oppression because it's been bottled up for so long. This is the perpetuation of that cycle I was talking about. Pain and sin. We respond to pain and sin with more pain and sin. Therefore, they're justified in a response to you and then you're justified in a response back to them. And it goes round and round and round. And some people, this is exactly what they want. There are some people that want society to be that way. They want families to be at each other's throats. They want the people in their company to always be hating each other because they thrive in those situations. There are whole agencies that want to disrupt governments and disrupt the peace in a nation because that way they can slip in the agenda that they have. And they weaponize pain and sin and envy and hate. It's a revenge of a kind. The Nazi party was revenge in a lot of ways. Are you familiar with this history? After World War I, which, if you know anything about that, was just a giant mess that was more or less everybody's fault. But Germany, as the strongest member of the alliance that was defeated, was forced to pay this exorbitant price and bear this incredible blame and the shame that was placed upon them and the way their country and the economy was just devastated. It paved the way for somebody like Adolf Hitler to come in and rise to power on the back of all that resentment and envy that had been built up. And this is why when they conquered France, they made them signed the treaty in the same boxcar that they had signed the treaty that had ended World War I and brought so much upon Germany. It wasn't just, we're so great. It was, we're going to stand up and show the whole world that we're not going to take that from them. This is why the Lord tells you, give those things to me. Because I don't want this to go on anymore. I don't want there to be constant fighting between the haves and have-nots, between the moms and the dads and the kids and the bosses and the employees. In fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God will fight for you. If you have a serious grievance and you are seriously being oppressed, the Psalms tell us over and over again, bring it to the Lord and let God do his thing. Because God is a good father. Christ is your friend who sticks closer than a brother. The Holy Spirit is your helper and your advocate. You have got a triune teammate in heaven. And there are countless millions of people who have found love and joy and peace in him and have been able to escape that cycle and change the way their family is. And my family is one of those families. God got a hold of one person in my family. And in just two or three generations, we were unrecognizable because that's what God does. When you've died to yourself with Christ, he raises you up to glory. But unchecked jealousy makes you a perpetrator of pain rather than a victim. Which is why you cannot accept the victim role for yourself. You take it to God and you live your life, Jesus said. 
You love those people because if you're going to let that eat away at you, you're going to turn into something even worse than they were. This family has gone from dysfunctional to broken. And we're going to see at the end of this book, it's only forgiveness that is going to make it whole again. But you have the option in your family to exercise forgiveness now and prevent all these things from happening. Well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. You work it out in your heart first so that when the day comes, you are already ready. You're already there. One of my favorite songs is by a man named Michael Sewell. He's a friend of mine too. He says, After all the Lord has done in me, turning anger into rest, after all the mercy given me, how could I give any less? And verse 36 as meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And we'll return to Joseph in chapter 39. But let's just close by, by saying, envy and jealousy are not fitting attitudes or motivations for a Christian. If the reason you are doing something that might even seem justifiable, if the motivation is jealousy, you need to stop right away. Sin is that which makes life worse, and that is what envy is. You've got to stamp it out in your own heart and you can't let it grow in the people around you because Proverbs 14.30 says that envy makes the bones rot. This also means that you cannot give occasion for envy and jealousy in the lives of those you love. Don't provoke your kids. Don't provoke your parents. Don't be the boss that's going to make all of your employees hate you. But there is no excuse for hatred and murder and revenge because that just keeps the evil wheel turning, doesn't it? And don't trust those hustlers who are going to try to leverage pain and envy for their own gain. They do not have your best interest at heart. And in Christ, we have the opportunity to put a stop to that cycle through forgiveness, mercy, self-renunciation. God will take all those things from you and everything will start to transform around you when you are no longer holding sins against the people that have hurt you. It's up to you. Christ has done all that is necessary. And if we start living like this, this is how we change the world.